are you guys doing? Good. How was uh, Afung? Is that what it's called? Did anybody find out what that means? What does that even mean? You just hit people with socks. This sounds like the best game ever. Um, how many of you guys were the sock the hitters? Yeah? Oh, counters were the hitters. That's not, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe later. Maybe um, if your counselors like really think you do a good job this week and you're like really good, maybe when you guys go back to your church, maybe they'll let you flip roles. That sound good? And then let you, counselors, yeah? All right, apparently not. I'm throwing them under the bus. All right, you guys, um, you guys, this is an incredible night. This is the night that I've been praying for. Honestly, I know we're only day two. We're not even halfway through the week. But this is the message. This is the night that I've been praying the most about. Because it has to do with love. Our entire culture is obsessed with love. We sing songs about it. We watch movies about it. We talk about it. You guys are in middle school. I know you guys have a couple different love interests right now, right? You guys are like elbowing someone next to you. Okay, good. Yeah, I'm glad. You're too young. Just kidding. So if I say this, I want you guys to complete my song. If I say this, what is love? Okay. All right. What about, what about this, this, this one's, this one's great. Love isn't open. There you go. Okay. This one, this one, I don't know. I, I love you like a, oh, wow. Okay. You guys got it. So this is the question that we ask all the time. What is love? Because the reality is everyone has a definition of love. Everybody assumes they know what love is. And we talk about it all the time. Is love an open door? Is love like a song? What is love? This is the cry of our heart. What is love? And here's the thing. God says he's love. So what does it mean that God is loving? Because the reality is, is I love California burritos. Did you guys know what California burritos are? Oh man, they're carne asada burritos, but you put French fries in them and you wrap them up and it's so good. It's a San Diego thing. You guys should come and visit. I love, love California burritos. But I also love the Padres, which by the way, they won tonight. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, you guys probably love this. I love a perfectly executed meme. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. When you're, when you're in a text conversation and someone hits you with a meme and you're like, that was, that was it. I can die now. I'm good. But I also, I also love my wife. Yeah, absolutely. But here's the thing. We can, yeah, okay, we can clap for that. It's a little, little good. But as you can tell, memes and breakfast burritos and California burritos are not on the same category as my wife. My love for them are different. Now, if my wife sends me the perfectly executed meme, I'm done, right? That's like, that's the perfect scenario. All right, bring it in, bring it in. John 13. John 13 Jesus is talking to his best buds and he says, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. And you're like, a new command, Jesus? Are you, you hit in the head? 
Because ever since we were created, we were created knowing what love is. And then Jesus comes in zero AD, just before, you know, we're 2,000, so it's 2,000 years ago, and he says, hey, a new command I give you, love. And you're like, that's not new. Except he says, love as I have loved you. Now, that's a different kind of love. So when God says, I am love, if you want to figure out how to define me, you can say, hey, God is love. If you want to know what love is, we have to look at Jesus, which is what we're going to do tonight. So the question is, What is God-type love? What is God's love like? What does it mean? How is God powerful? How is God just? How is he great? How is he holy? And how is he loving? John 3.16, the most famous verse, right? For God so, you guys say it with me, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Amen. Amen. I have a couple pictures. Um, the first one is going to be me. Um, we're uh, river rafting. So I got a picture that's going to come on up. Oh, it's up here. So you, have you guys ever gone river rafting before? So um, who's, who's from Tuolumne here? Yeah? All right. So um, this is on the Tuolumne River. And so I'm river rafting with my buds. We used to go out every year and we would go river rafting. We would do it in Tuolumne. We've done it in Moab. We've done it in the American River up in Northern California area. So we've, we just river raft all the time. And as you can see, I'm always making a really funny face. So if you can go to the next picture. This is me. This is like me excited, I guess. This is what I look like. So I'm, I'm river rafting. We would do this every year. And so this is, this is actually why I want to bring up these pictures because it's been a helpful thing for me to understand God's love. Now, remember, like I said, with the dime story, that we can know God, but the reality is there's so much more about God that we cannot know that's just hidden behind the dime. So much more. So every example is not going to be perfect. We can't perfectly describe God because he's completely holy. But this has been really helpful for me because when I think about a river and I think about God's love, they're actually very similar. God's love is always flowing. God's love is always moving forward. It is flowing like the rapids of a river. And like the river, it can be fast and furious and exciting and scary all at the same time. God's love is a river that's always flowing towards you. It's his love that's flowing towards the world at all times. God so loved the world. God's love is like a river. It is flowing towards you. It is nonstop, always going towards you. But like I talked about this morning, we sin. We have all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And so when we are meant to be riding the rapids of God's love, we actually go against God's love. And sin is an archery term. You guys, um, there's archery out here. Archery term, literally sin means you miss the mark. You miss the standard of God's love. And so essentially what we say is, God, I know better than you. And so this is what happens. If you're supposed to be riding the rapids of God's love, what happens when you try to go against or you go sideways to God's love? I got one more picture. This is what happens. This is what happens when you turn sideways to God's love. See, again, God's love. His perfect love, his love that gave his son, his love that sacrificed for you, his love that's always moving towards you. The reality is his love doesn't change, we do. 
And his love's always moving, but we can turn sideways to his love. And when we turn sideways to his love, we experience his love as justice. We experience his love as opposition. We experience his love as wrath. It's not that he's unloving. It's that we've turned sideways to his love and we experience it as justice. God's love, his justice, his holiness are all the same. God is perfectly loving. He is perfectly holy. He is perfectly just. He is always moving his love forward. It's actually because God is loving, he's just. Because if he were not loving, if he were not good, justice would be weak. But God is loving. God's also merciful and forgiving. And you're like, wait, wait, hold up. How can God be perfectly just, meaning that he gives us the right consequences for our actions? And how can he also be perfectly loving, forgiving, and merciful? It feels like there's a dilemma there. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. God loves Israel as we see through these stories, and God loves you. He loves us, and he hates, he hates the sin that robs our life from him. He hates it. God is just because when we sin, when we turn sideways to his love, we experience brokenness and pain. We experience slavery. As we saw, Israel was enslaved to Egypt. We experience separation from God. And God is not satisfied being separated from us because he loves us. He's flowing towards us. God hates that sin is the thing that separates us from him. And so he wants to deal with it. He wants to give us freedom. So how will God do this? If you guys have your Bibles, can you guys hold it up in the earth? Perfect. Open up to Exodus 12. Exodus 12. You guys should know where Exodus is by this time. Open up to the big number 12. Exodus 12. We're going to be in verses 5 through 8, and then we'll jump to 11 through 14. Exodus 12. How is God going to give us freedom? How is God going to show us his love? And we see this in Exodus 12. Verses 5 through 8. It says this, this is God talking to Moses. He says, your lamb shall be without blemish, means it should be perfect, a male, a year old, and you shall take it from a sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. And when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Now skip down to verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborns in the land. Notice he says all the firstborns in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statue forever. You shall keep it 
as a feast. The setting is Egypt, and the mood is chaos. Now, Egypt was just devastated by nine plagues, as we saw, just devastated by nine plagues. But notice, this is not a string of bad luck. It's not just like a hurricane swept through and you're like, oh, I didn't see that coming. No, God is bringing judgment and justice on Egypt. They're sideways to his love, and it's time. God is like, it is time for me to free my people. It's time for me to save them from what's stealing their life. It's time for me to give them life again because they've been in slavery. So right here, what we're studying is the finale. You guys know every show that you watch, the finale is always the best. If you ever go to Disneyland, the finale of the fireworks, it's always the best. It's always the biggest. This is the finale. And you know what? God actually calls Israel in Exodus 4, verse 22. God calls Israel his firstborn son. So from the beginning, when when God had the nation of Israel and he loved them, he called them his firstborn son. Does that ring any bells to you? Pharaoh, if you remember, he threw all of the firstborn sons into the Nile. He was killing babies. He was killing all the firstborn sons. Pharaoh and Egypt are enslaving God's firstborn son, Israel. And so you guys might now be connecting these dots because you're kind of like, what's up with God wanting to kill the firstborn sons? And that's the point. God isn't this vengeful God who's like, hey, you hit me, I'm going to hit you 10 times harder. No, he's just. And he's he's equal in his judgment where he says, you've been killing my firstborn son. And so I demand an equal payment of your firstborn son. This is why the firstborn son plague is here. But this is heavy. This is extremely heavy. And I don't want to gloss over the fact that this seems really harsh. I don't want to make light of it because this is real. This happened. This isn't a story that we read as if it was a fairy tale. This is a real thing that happened in history where God was enacting and saving his people. This is a real story. God is that holy. And when we slap him, he's just. God would not be good if he wasn't just. And so we have to get this, guys. We have to understand this before we move forward. Sin actually is that problematic. Sin actually is that big of a deal. Sin actually is that serious. And God is actually that good. We have to understand how bad our sin is and how good God is. And notice this, no one is exempt from this judgment. Did you notice what I said? God is going to kill every firstborn son in Egypt. Israel is in Egypt. They're not exempt except God gave them a way out. God looks at them and he says, all have sinned, even his own firstborn son. God, all have sinned. Israel, Egypt, you, me, we've all sinned and we all deserve God's judgment. He's not being partial. He's not playing favorites, right? He is perfectly just. And so he says, Israel, as well as Egypt, you must sacrifice. So how can God be just and forgiving? Well, the answer is in verse five. He says, take a spotless lamb, a perfect lamb, a male, a year old. Essentially what he's saying is take the most expensive, take the most prized possession that you have, that lamb, take that lamb. And in verse seven, he says, kill it instead of the firstborn son. 
Take its life instead of the firstborn son. Wipe the blood over your door. And then judgment and death will pass over you. That's why it's called the Passover, because judgment and death passed over them. Justice will be paid for now. So when God sees the blood, justice will be paid for now. God spared Israel's sons. Notice this, not because they were good. God only spared Israel's sons because of the blood. God didn't save Israel because they were his favorites, because they were good. They, he saved Israel because there was a sacrifice in their place. There was a lamb that took their place. Romans 3.23, I read this a little bit earlier, but I'm going to read it again. It says this. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, And then verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation in his blood. And you're like, propitiation, that's a big church word. Anybody know what that word means? Like just that's everyday vocabulary for you? Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Great. You guys know what that means. Propitiation, but it's not just a substitute. Propitiation is a substitute that satisfies. Did anybody watch the low-key series? Remember remember that came out? So I am probably going to spoil it for you, but the low-key series, the low-key, if you guys know anything about Loki, Loki has these powers, right? And he has these powers where he has these powers where he can he can enter into someone else's body. And so people who are mad at Loki are fighting these other people, but Loki's like in their body. You guys remember those scenes? And, And so what happens is when those people finally kill the person who Loki is inhabiting, that person dies, but it doesn't actually satisfy because Loki's still alive. And so those people who were trying to kill Loki, even though they killed someone else who was a substitute for Loki, it never satisfied because Loki was still alive. That is a substitute that doesn't satisfy, but a propitiation, that's a substitute that does satisfy. And then it continues. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And you're like, what the heck is forbearance? It's a fancy word that just means patience. And God's patient. God is patient with us. He's patient with us. God, that's that's the reason why when we sin, we don't just die. If you've read Genesis 3 and then God said, hey, when you eat of this fruit, the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. But God is patient. So when they ate of the fruit, they had spiritual death, but they didn't have physical death immediately. God is patient. Amen. I'm so grateful God is patient with us. And so God is patient. And then he, he gives us this lamb and it's, it's a sign. How many of you guys have seen the Hollywood sign? Yeah. So I, I've like gone a couple times and whenever I see the Hollywood sign, it's really funny because, because the Hollywood sign, as all signs, they tell you you're in Hollywood. But we're really good at making signs look nice, right? And so people will drive all the way through the worst LA traffic. I hate LA traffic. And so they drive all the way through LA traffic just to get to a place where they can take a picture of the Hollywood sign. And then they're like, sweet, let's go home. And then they just go home. When the sign is supposed to tell you, you're in Hollywood. Enjoy Hollywood. Don't just take a picture of the sign. You guys from Nevada, it took 10 hours, eight hours to get here? Okay, could you imagine 
driving all that way and you guys pulled up to Hume Lake and you guys got out, like right when you saw the sign, you guys got out of the bus, you guys probably holding pee for a really long time. You got out and then you're like, okay, we're here, we made it. And then you, you guys, all right, let's go take a, a, you know, let's go take a school photo in front of the sign. You guys all go, you guys start cheesing, you take all your pictures and you're like, that was awesome. We're so glad we made it. This is such a cool sign. Get back in the bus and drive another eight hours back to Nevada. What is the point exactly? Because the point of the sign, when you drive here and you see the sign that says Hume Lake, the sign is an invitation to something deeper. The sign is an invitation. Don't just admire the sign. The sign's supposed to welcome you into Hume Lake because we have a week of Jesus and fun for you. So come on in. Don't just take a picture and go. And so what we saw in Exodus 12 was a sign. It was a sign. But what does the sign point towards? In John 1, verse 29, there's this guy, his name's John. He's kind of weird. He like wears coats of camel hair and eats locusts. It's kind of gross. But he's Jesus's cousin. And, and he's baptizing people. And in John 1, 29, Jesus is walking over to John. And John looks at Jesus and he says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, I've seen, I've seen quite a few lambs in my day. I think they're kind of cute. Anybody else? Lambs are cute. But here's, I don't think, I don't think that John is looking at Jesus and saying, behold, he's cute. <laughs> I actually think, I actually think that John's hitting on something deeper. John wasn't saying Jesus was cute. John was saying, hey, that sign of Exodus 12 that perfect, expensive, top-tier lamb that you sacrificed in your place in Exodus 12 was a sign. But behold, the sign is no longer because the real thing is here. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John is looking at Jesus and saying, that sign, what saved you, which got you out of slavery, which brought you to freedom, it's here. And his name is Jesus. The sign was never meant to be the thing that you stopped and stared at and went home. The sign was to invite you into a relationship with Jesus. But notice, the, the little lamb that they sacrificed, they had to sacrifice year after year to keep covering their sins because it would not traverse the gap. Remember, Pharaoh's down here. We're down here. God is up here. The gap is too wide. You cannot be good enough. You can't pray enough. You need God to traverse the gap. And so what we see here, God is holy, the gap is too wide, the lamb was just a sign, only God can bridge the gap, and so Jesus comes in, God with a bod, or as my friend Austin says, God with zipped up flesh comes, and he's the actual lamb that we need. So the lamb of Exodus 12 can't bridge the gap, it's a placeholder, pointing us forward to Jesus. Now, the New Testament, which is the second half of your guys' Bible, if you guys know, it starts off with four biographies of Jesus. Do you guys know what they're called? Gospels. And they're written, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all of them, all of them talk about Jesus. 
They talk about this guy, Jesus, the Lamb of God. And they, and they talk about how Jesus was prophesied from the very beginning. I mean, you open your Bibles, you can't get as far as page three without seeing Jesus. And so they go through and they start saying, he was in the beginning. He was with God. Nothing was created without him because Jesus is God. And so then they talk about how throughout the Old Testament, you can see Jesus. Throughout the Old Testament, everything points to Jesus. And they start looking at all of those different things and like, man, Jesus was here. Jesus was here. Jesus was here. Jesus was here. And now Jesus is here. And so Jesus came and he came and it's God who came to have flesh and to live a life like us. But he did what we couldn't do because see, we sin. We turn sideways to God. We say, God, I know better than you. Jesus came and he never sinned. Jesus came and he lived the life that we could not live. He never broke relationship with God. And then you see he walks around, he starts doing miracles and he starts healing people. He starts saving people. He starts freeing them from demons. Why? Because he's showing them, hey, with me, there's freedom. He's freeing them from slavery. And then at the end of the gospels, you see that this perfect spotless lamb, Jesus, on a Passover, hundreds of years after Exodus 12, I mean, you can't miss the connections. Hundreds of years later, this perfect lamb, Jesus, was brutally beaten. He was hung on a cross, and he died the death that we deserve, that Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. He died the death that we deserved because of our sin. You guys know Jesus' favorite name for himself, and the name that all the gospel writers called him, was the Son of God. Jesus became Egypt so that we can be Israel. I mean, what kind of person does this? What kind of God does this? Who would ever step in your place and die a death like that that we deserve? I mean, here's the thing. There's no other religion that can do this. There's no other way of thinking. There's no other philosophy. There's no other answer to the brokenness that we have that the Bible gives us. There's nothing else that can tell us, hey, why we're so broken and why we have hope except for Jesus. He's the only one that fixes the problem. Romans 5, 8 through 9 says this. It says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God, from the justice of God? Exodus 12, 13, God said, when I see the blood, when I see the blood that's over your doorpost, when I see the blood, I will pass over. In Jesus, God died in our place. In Jesus, God is perfectly holy, he is perfectly just, and he is perfectly loving. I wanna talk about faith real quick. Faith, faith is you taking a step, taking an action based off of evidence. It's why you get into elevators. Because you've seen elevators go up before, so you know elevators work. That's why you get into elevators, you don't even think about it. You have faith in an elevator because you've seen evidence of it. 
So could you imagine if Israel heard God say, hey, I'll save you, I'll pass over you when you put the blood over your doorpost. And Israel was like, hey, yeah, God, I believe you. But they never actually put the blood over their doorpost. Either they're lunatics or they didn't believe God. See, the reality is, is when we believe God, we change something in our lives. Like them, when they believed that God was gonna pass over, they put the blood over the doorpost. When we believe God and we put our faith in him, we begin to follow his way of life. We give him our life, we give him our desires, we give him our passions, we give him our wants, and we say, God, your way is better. I don't wanna turn sideways to your love anymore. No one is outside the reach of God's love, no one. Egypt wasn't outside the reach of God's love, but they just didn't have faith. They didn't cover themselves with the blood. They didn't listen. Israel was in God's love because they decided to. Guys, we're all in the same boat. I'm in the same boat as you. We are all in need of saving. Every one of us. See, I might be standing up here on the stage and you guys might be like, oh man, he must know a lot. He must be really holy. No, I'm broken and I'm sinful. Your teachers, your pastors, your leaders, your parents, all sinful, all broken, all need Jesus. And so Jesus, his Passover blood can save you in the same way that his Passover blood has saved me and it continues to save me if you want it to. So the reality is the same way that God let that invitation to Egypt, he said, hey, you guys could put the blood over your doorposts, but they didn't. If you want God's blood to save you, you can. If you believe in him, if you trust in him with your life, if by in faith you say, God, I want a relationship with you. See, Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth, if you believe in your heart that Jesus raised from the dead, you will be saved. We're all in the same boat. I want to go back to the rapid picture. And I want to share just one final story. There's a, the one, can you go one more picture over? That one right there. So you're like, who am I looking at? That's my friend Nick. You can maybe see him floating somewhere in the middle. Um, so what happened was we, we turned sideways to the rapids, as I said, but what we were trying to do is this thing called surfing. And so our guide, our instructor, who's in the back with a good smile on, um, our guide told us, he's like, hey, actually what we can do is we can turn opposite of the rapids and we can like put our nose up against the current and we can, it's almost like you're surfing the rapids. And so we tried doing that, but then we turned sideways and you see how it went. And so what happened when we turned sideways, um, Nick fell overboard. Thankfully, I didn't. And Nick and a couple other people fell overboard. But Nick fell overboard, and then he was underwater for five seconds. And we were like, oh my gosh, that was so crazy. Nick, come back. And he stayed under the water. And then 10 seconds go by, and Nick is still under the water. And we're like, where is Nick? We're looking around to see if maybe he's going to pop up downstream, but he hasn't popped up. Every once in a while, we see like a little yellow helmet that starts to kind of float to the top, but then goes back under. And then we start remembering that our guide told us, if this ever happens, don't fight the current. 
Because what happens is when the water comes down, it begins to make like a washing machine and all of a sudden it just spirals and spirals. And so if you're in that place, you can't fight the current because you'll keep yourself in the washing machine. What you're supposed to do is you're supposed to get up into a little ball and you drop down underneath the current. It shoots you out in an undertow. So the way to get out of this is to give up. And so 10 seconds go by and Nick is fighting the current and he's not coming up. 15 seconds go by and all of a sudden we're realizing Nick's going to die. And we're like, man, Nick, Nick has a wife. Nick was pregnant. I mean, his wife, he wasn't pregnant. (laughs) The story just got crazy, right? Nick's wife, (laughs) all right, bring it back. Nick's wife, Nick's wife was pregnant with their firstborn. And so, I mean, you can imagine, I mean, sit there in the boat with us. Like we're freaking out because we're realizing Nick is down there and he's not coming up. And 15 seconds is a long time, especially when you're freaking out and you're underwater. And then 20 seconds goes by. And we heard this story from Nick later. Spoiler alert, he survives. I know you guys were all on the edge of your seat. Nick, Nick is still one of my good friends to this day. He's a pastor out in Long Beach. And, and, and Nick was telling us the story of what it was like when he was underwater. And, and he, he said he was, he was just fighting the current because he was getting flashbacks. He was starting to realize my wife is pregnant. I'm about to be a dad. I can't die. My time's not up. And so while he's freaking out, he's just trying to go against the current. And after 20 seconds, he finally realized I'm going to die. And he gave up. And it was in that moment when he gave up, when he stopped trying to fight the current, when he finally just let it go, he was able to go down under and he shot out and came up and he started to breathe again. Now here's why this is significant. Because God's love is continuing to move. But I think if we're really honest, see the the reality is most of you guys, you guys know about Jesus. You guys, you guys have heard me talk about him. You've heard other people talk about him. You know about Jesus. But the, the reality is, is you're probably a lot like who I was when I was sitting in your seat, where I was trying to find my joy in everything else. I was trying to find my life in everything else. I was trying to have everything else fulfill me. Sports, girlfriends, popularity, viewing things on the internet. I was looking for anything just to fill me up. And what I was doing is I was fighting against God's love. God's love was coming to me. He's like, hey, you got, I've got a better way of life for you. I have a way of life for you that actually gives you life, that doesn't keep you enslaved to the bondage of, of needing approval from everyone else. I have freedom for you. This gap is too wide. I've traversed that gap for you. God's love was moving towards me, but I was fighting against his love. And I found myself in that cycle, continuing to try to get myself out of it. But the reality is, is you can't get yourself out of it. And maybe you're here and you're exhausted. And as I'm sharing this message, you're like, "Ah, I am exhausted. And you're hearing Jesus, and maybe you're hearing about Jesus for the first time. Awesome. And maybe you're hearing Jesus about the 60th time, or maybe the 100th time. But the reality is, is maybe tonight you're realizing that you've been trying to fight against God's love. Maybe tonight you've been hearing this in a new way where you're realizing the gap actually is that big. God is actually that good, and we are actually that bad, and we need a Savior. 
And maybe many of you guys like Nick tonight need to realize that you can't do it on your own. You need to give up. And in that moment of surrender, in that moment where you say, Jesus, my life is yours, you'll find that you'll shoot out and you'll have more life and more freedom and joy and the, the life that God had for you, had planned for you, you'll find that that's now your life. Because the perfect spotless lamb, Jesus, God himself died in our place. And so tonight I'm gonna ask maybe if that's you. If you've been sitting here these past three messages and something's been stirring in your heart, that's God. The Holy Spirit has been tugging on your heart and he's been revealing things to you. Maybe for the first time you're realizing how good God is and how bad your sin is and you're like, I actually want God's goodness. I want a relationship with him. And so if you're in here and that's you, you, you know. Maybe even right now you're starting to feel that tug. Or maybe you're starting to realize, man, this is actually true and it's, it's maybe in your head right now. I want to pray with you. And so I'm going to ask if for the first time you, you want to say, Jesus, I want to give you my life. I want to surrender to your love. And I want to step into this relationship with you. I want to experience your goodness. I want to experience your love. I want to know you as holy and just. But I want to receive the blood and I want to be saved under the blood. If that's you, I want you to pray with me. So I'm going to have everyone close your eyes and bow your heads. And I want this to be a really safe environment, so please honor everybody else. Would you guys have your, your heads down? And like I said, maybe, maybe I've said some things or some examples and, and you felt like maybe God was just saying, man, that's you. And you know right now God is calling you. In the same way he called Moses, he said, Moses, Moses, he's calling you. He says, I want to be in relationship with you. You realize that you can't do it, God has. And so if that's you in your own mind, in your own heart, I'm going to pray. Would you just repeat this prayer after me in your own head? There's no magic formula here. I'm not going to ask you to jump on one foot and turn around or say a code word. Just pray with me. Jesus, I love you. And Jesus, I realize I need you. God, I've been trying to live life on my own. And I know I can't do it. But God, I know that you did what I can't do. God, I know that you came as Jesus and you took the penalty and the just payment for my sin. And because of that, I want to sit under your blood and I want to be saved and I want to be in a relationship with you. And so Jesus, would you enter into my heart and my life will I have a relationship with you? Now, everyone, please keep your heads down. Um, I want to give you a moment to kind of mark this moment. See, the reality is, is sometimes we can just gloss past these moments. So if that was you, that you prayed that prayer with me, would you mind lifting up your head and giving me some eye contact? I just want to see. 
And just keep looking at me. I want to make eye contact with you. This is a really important moment. Thank you, guys. This is significant. This is a moment where you said, Jesus, I want to step into a relationship with you. I remember August 9th in 2008. I made a decision like this. And I, sit, I stand up here on this stage because of that decision. I'm still making eye contact with you guys. Thank you. That's huge. God loves you. He's holy, he's just, he's perfect, and he loves you. Awesome, you guys can bow your heads again and close your eyes. Now I just wanna pray over everybody real quick. God, I thank you for everybody in this room tonight. I thank you especially for all of those decisions made. God, the Bible shows us that when one person turns to you. There is a party and a celebration in heaven. God, there is a party and celebration in heaven right now. And I thank you that you don't just celebrate when a room of people look up, you celebrate when one looks up. And so God, I pray that each and every individual who said that they want to follow you, that right now they know that they're individually loved by you, that you know their name specifically, you know their story, you know the things that have gone on in their lives, you know their quirks, you know their passions, you know everything about them, you know their deepest and darkest moments, and yet you love them. Would they experience and know your love right now, God? And God, I pray I pray that their hearts are like good soil, that the seed of the gospel continue to grow and flourish, and that they live lives that follow after you. They live lives that are bold. They live lives that change the world around them. They live lives that change their family and their sports teams and their schools, that they live lives that are marked and changed because of tonight. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen.